Hello, and welcome to Becoming Unstuck, where we talk to people about the internal paradigm shifts that have changed their perception of the world. These stories are meant to help us understand how long becoming really takes and how much dedication unsticking really requires. This is not a show about falling backwards into anything. This is a show about not giving up hope, even when things are really hard. The show isn't one in which we cover up the mess because the mess is life, and what we are here to do is learn to live. Thanks for being with me. Today, my guest is Sibel Guner, who is back from South Africa after getting her second master's. She's here to do some research on her thesis, and we're very glad to have her. And I'll toss the mic to her to let her say a little bit more. Hello. Thank you so much, Jess. It's so nice to be here. Just got back a couple of days ago directly into the very loving hands of this wonderful friend who's been with me as I've processed and gone through so many different phases of unsticking and reminding myself of the meaning of life and the cycles and patterns I've gotten lost in. And it's a lesson that I feel like I have to keep teaching myself, but I also feel like it's been getting a lot easier to keep track of what I've decided really matters, which is just so, so different from what it used to be. So I'm really excited to be here and to get to talk about it. Awesome. Well, why don't we start then? I hear you saying that things are getting easier. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could start us off with what was the first unsticking that happened for you? For me, I feel like most of it has to do with my value system being really centered around working and making money. And I just got, I was very convinced that that was sort of the point of life for most of my life, because I just sort of felt like I should always be working. And I really tied up my value with making money all the time and working all the time. And being really unhappy, but not noticing that I was because noticing whether I was happy or not just didn't seem important for so much of my life. And now that's changed a lot. And I think it's one of the most important things, you know, not in a hedonistic way, but just in a why are we here sort of way, Mm. you know? Mm. And I had just sort of a, a very sudden rude awakening that really changed my relationship with what I think the point of life is and what work is supposed to be for and my relationship with money and relationships. Like as soon as I turned 16, I just started working more than full-time hours, always trying to make money and yet somehow never having it and not recognizing that there's a systemic reason for that. And that's sort of how the whole United States is oriented. I was born and raised in the U.S. And obviously a part of that just comes from the experience of family. You know, my parents migrated here. So there was a lot of pressure to survive in the U.S., which every single person experiences, not just migrants, but It's definitely stronger in the case of migrants when you don't have the safety net of a family or a home that you grew up in or whatever. And so I was really able to closely witness my parents' loss of self as they became completely subsumed by work in the capitalist grind. And then obviously I personally did the exact same thing because we're a mirror of our parents and I didn't know any different. When I was in middle school, I was working, which isn't supposed to happen. (laughs) Like you're like an 11 year old child. I shouldn't have been working, but I didn't know that I shouldn't be because to my mom, it was just so obvious. Why wouldn't I be working to get a free lunch? She just like convinced someone to have me do that kind of employment. And you know, that was the headspace that I was always in. And the idea that I should be eating with friends never occurred to her. And so it never occurred to me. And now, interestingly enough, for this research that I'm doing for my second thesis, it's very specifically about the value of collectively eating food together. So I've definitely done the hard swing back. (laughs) So what was your breakout moment? 
when I was 25, I broke out of that by applying to my first master's program, which took place entirely overseas. And I left the US, could no longer work because I didn't have a work visa. So for the first time in my life, I wasn't working and I experienced joy for the first time. Because I wasn't studying with Americans, I was in Germany, South Africa, and India. I was with so many people that didn't come from this culture of hypercapitalism. Even if they'd worked, it was like part-time hours and it didn't dominate their life or their headspace. So it was sort of eye-opening that this is a way that you can live. And that had not occurred to me before. That was a big lesson that I sort of internalized before I came back to the US for a job, which I was ashamed for that to be the reason, but I do need money, was that I told myself never to let myself get back into a headspace in which I'm counting money and convince myself that that is what matters, because that literally isn't what matters. That was sort of the big unstick that then I've continued to circle back to through all the series of other adventures and misadventures that have happened in the years since then. Thank you for sharing that. There's probably a lot of us who are still trying to find balance around some of those things. Oftentimes when we unstick, we swing very far mm. the other way. And I'm wondering how you mm. find balance. You're so right about the pendulum swing. The pendulum has continued to swing in the other direction. It's like I only notice once it gets so extreme and then I can catch it and throw it back the other way. So that, so there have been like a few different resurgences of times that I've gotten lost in these very dark spirals. For example, this job that I came back to the US for, I worked so, so hard and thought I was changing the world and really just gave everything to it. And I just completely got lost and didn't realize that was happening until a year and a half in when I was traumatically, very suddenly fired from this job and felt the world being pulled out from under my feet, then realized I'd forgotten joy. I was living overwhelmed with anxiety. I was obsessing with my work again, that I was just totally lost. But I knew the questions to ask myself and really specifically the word joy. I was like, you have not been experiencing joy for the last year and a half that you've been doing this, this job that you thought was so fulfilling and meaningful to you. And actually, that wasn't the point, was it? So I love crisis. So I sort of went into crisis response and I said, what is it that would have been bringing you joy that you haven't been doing for the last year and a half? So I did something called the Summer of Loved Ones 2019 where I spent two months traveling, collecting unemployment to be able to fund traveling and visiting friends. And I visited 28 different friends and had the same conversation with everyone where I said I was just traumatically fired from this job that I'm returning to reminding myself the meaning of life and the meaning of life is you and my friendship and love for you. And let's talk about it. And everybody that I visited wanted to have that conversation and they were moved and changed. And it was just so deeply meaningful. And then when I came back, I was immediately offered a new, different job that was so much better, put me on a way better path and spent two years there. And it was just sort of beautiful. And I feel like that extreme pendulum swing back, that sort of aggressive course correction of the summer of loved ones made it possible for me to get into a much better place. The experience of finding balance isn't a very soft one. It really takes a hard push but every time I've gotten used to recognizing what questions I need to ask and how to answer it to sort of to land myself there. And it's kept happening. I mean, that's just one example. It keeps happening. It's going to keep happening, but I'm here for it. <laughs> and that's the most important part. Mm. So I, I hear you saying that the second time around, you went back to this job that you got mm -hmm. fired from mm -hmm. and it was the firing itself that helped you realize mm -hmm. what was going on. Do you have a different process for yourself now? First of all, I don't really know. 
But second of all, I'll try to answer. Because <laughs> me not knowing, I think, is also a part of the beauty of figuring this out every time. So for my process, I realized it's the relationships that are what matters to me. So for example, this experience that we're talking about now, I couldn't believe that I could be fired from a job that I gave so much to and that I had been identified with so strongly. But when it happened, I was on a business trip overseas and I was sent back home early to be terminated. And so the job was suddenly taken away. I couldn't believe it. But I had founded this housing cooperative a couple of years before and I came back to that house and that house was there and those people were there. This thing that I worked so hard to do in my unpaid time, that's not something that could be taken away. So it was this really big realization that those things that we cultivate in our relational time, that's the thing that will save me when things get dark. The way that I hold on to that now on my Google Keep, I have bullet point lists called who to call for love. And honestly, I just look at that list sometimes and just stare at it and just remember that I have these people because it's one of the things that I forget when I get really lost and scared and down. Um, loneliness is a feeling that creeps up a lot on me. And I just open this list and I'll just stare at it and just take deep breaths and remember that I'm loved. So that process has been really grounding for me. And so simple, you know, too. Something that you don't think you'll forget. I seriously forget about those relationships if I don't remind myself to face them and to cultivate them. I also put a lot of effort into cultivating the relationships. A friend of mine told me a quote recently that was, love your friends so much until it gets weird and then love them more. I was like, yes, what's the point of life if not that? You had this unsticking that is still happening, that you're still integrating into your life. How does money then play into your life? How do you make the mechanics of the material life work? It's such a great question. It's so hard. Some of it is virtually just privilege. Like I don't have much money, but I have enough to be okay. And I've lived through periods of time in which I didn't have enough to be okay. So I can tell the difference. I can tell that I actually can always afford food and that hasn't always been the case. The relationships that I've cultivated allow me to have the safety net. If I needed to, I can look at that list. And a lot of the people on that list are people that I can call in desperation and stay on their couches. And that's a safety net that I'm trying to build. Not in an extractive way, but it gives me the sense of security that I have this thing that's not material that will save me if the money vanishes, because I do sort of believe that money is fake and can go away um, at any given time. But yeah, I mean, it also is just spent so much of my time working so hard. And so I do have some savings and it's not very much. It's in my retirement account, but there's a 10% penalty, right? When you pull from a retirement account, over the course of these unstickings, one of the lessons I learned is it doesn't matter and I don't care. And so if times are desperate, pull a couple of grand from your retirement account, take the 10% hit and never think about it again because your survival and your joy is worth it. So that's the kind of decision that I'm able to make. I mean, I'm sure Suze Orman would not recommend that to anybody. Like I'm sure this wouldn't be on planet money. But for me, I've spent a lot of time and effort telling myself not to lose track of this value system. Those are the kinds of decisions that it leads me to make. The other part of it is that I hustle. Like I have a small graphic design business. I have been cultivating those relationships for many years. I have, you know, computer skills with which I can get work that pays higher than the laboring class work that I did for the 10 straight years that kept me unable to save any money. There was definitely a big shift in my life when I moved into what I call sort of managerial class. You know, when you're above the level at which you're being paid slightly more for the value of work versus less. So there's just a huge privilege in being able to have access to that kind of income when I have access to it that 
it is nobody's fault that a lot of people don't have. What I'm getting from this is that you have moved from prioritizing the future to prioritizing the present. Hmm. Nice way of putting it. Did you say that's true? The first thing that I think when I hear that is, yes, that sounds true. And the reason is I don't really feel that we have a future. You know, it's, it's estimated for my age group that we wouldn't be able to access our retirement accounts until we're 71 years old. The odds that these financial institutions will be stable and will be in place when I am 71 years old, 40 years from now, it are just laughable to me. We are going to be so distracted with all of the natural disasters over which we're trying to survive. So if I let myself get convinced that the system as it is now is the thing that I should be assuming will continue and should invest in, I feel like I'd be lost before I begin. So I think that's the way in which I don't have as much faith in the future, you know, and and just sort of the midlife crisis thing or the deathbed thoughts. People are always like, oh, I wish I hadn't worked so hard and had spent more time with their families. I'm here for that lifetime movie. You know, I'm internalizing that right now and I'm not going to let myself be unhappy. At the same time, I have three different retirement accounts and I don't really throw money away except the relational thing comes into the way that I'm comfortable giving money away. If any friend needs anything, if I want to invite somebody somewhere, they can't afford a ticket. I will give them a ticket and say, you don't have to say thank you. You don't have to think about it ever again. This is just yours. That is the way in which I want money to be taken from me because there are so many ways in which money is taken from us that goes to such horrible systems. They don't deserve it. And the people that we love do. So one of the ways that you have been able to focus on the present is because Mm. you've removed faith from the given systems and put them into relational systems. Yes. Great way of putting it. Yes. Yes. I couldn't agree more. And nothing has proved you wrong yet. Nothing has proven me wrong yet. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I continue to be deeply entrenched in this idea that money is made up and it only grows the more that I travel. You know, I have friends that have grown up in indigenous nomadic communities in which there wasn't money. Today, in this day and age, you can just meet people for whom money is not an object or has not been a part of their social conditioning. And my experience of it has been that it has caused so much more hurt than it's helped. And I'm trying really hard to to do something which is called building dual power, in which we live in a system of capitalism that we don't have a lot of choices available to us, like we've been talking about. We have capital needs in order to survive in this particular system. But should that system fall, we can already put systems in place that could then replace it. You know, the relationships that we're building, the ways that we organize with each other, we could be creating these at the same time while we still go to whatever work we might need to be able to survive. And when that other stuff collapses, we will be here for each other because we've been training for this. When you say money is not real, people can't see you. Mm. So I want to also say you're able-bodied. You haven't mm-hmm. had to. You haven't had to exist under a system where you need right. medication, right? Like yes. you know, for an autoimmune yes. disease. Um, yes, this is very true, and that's also part of the privilege that absolves me from some of the decisions I get to make with my relationship with money, for sure, for sure. As you get older and you envision yourself coming into contact with injuries that don't go away, how do you understand this? belief moving with you and shaping across your lifetime? I mean, it's so hard because I feel like the answer changes so much based on the context. The condition in which I'm in the US and something like that happens is so different from the condition in which I'm living in Germany 
or Turkey or India or South Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, these are all places that mm-hmm. I've lived. You know, like in those contexts, I don't want to say it wouldn't be a big deal, but it's just so much easier. You know, the health system is there. The social support is there. It's not work to ask for care from a loved one. And here, not only is it an inappropriate favor to ask in the U.S. context because you're demanding labor that you should be paying for, but it's also so, so costly and there's no social services and safety that can provide that. So the first thing that I think when I hear of that scenario is, oh, I would, I have enough knowledge now to know that I could leave to go to a place where that care would be made available to me. And I know every single person, when I have these conversations with, they always say, well, how could you afford to leave? The cost of living is so much cheaper. When people ask how I could afford to do either of these masters, I say it cost a tenth of what it would would have cost for me to just stay where I was living in the Bay Area and working. But somehow this country makes us feel like this is all that there is. So in those circumstances, I don't realistically know if I would stay in this country. Well, I hear you saying that you are unstuck from the belief that this country will save you, like so many migrants Mm -hmm. are stuck in the belief that this country will save them. Yes. Yes. That's such a good way of putting it. Yes, I think so. And I mean, it's hard because I love it here. I mean, I love the people here so much, but this place isn't good to us and it's not fair and it's not our fault. The struggle just wears me down so much, but there's also so much love. It's true. (laughs) It's true. And I want to make sure to get a well-rounded understanding of what you're saying. Are you saying that that you think the struggle is less elsewhere? Such a good question. I mean, the world is so big, so there's different struggles everywhere. Um, I think for me, I just sort of think of Western Europe as like the land of the free that my parents just missed. (laughs) Um, I do think that to be an average person in the U.S. is much, much harder than to be an average person in Western Europe, just generally. Um, But there are a lot of contexts in which I don't think that that's true. You know, I have a friend who's in Palestine and um, also has access to the U.S. And when I complain about the U.S. in this way, he's like, yes, but it's an improvement from my home. And I'm not going to ever convince myself that the U.S. is worse than the context that I would be leaving coming from Palestine. And I'm like, that's a great point. (laughs) You know, it's so much easier to hate on the things that you love and that are close to you. But um, there are definitely worse places to be. I can show compassion for people here that are part of this struggle because I understand and relate to them, but I can't project onto people in other contexts that what they have is better. Having the most privileged passport almost in the world and having access to the hegemon and its resources, it is something else. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Have you lived in other countries? Like lived and worked and had a full-time job? Yeah. You know, I've lived in other countries. I've mostly just hustled in other places, but I've lived in... Italy, Germany, South Africa, and India for a total of four or five years spread out into different chunks among them. And I'm Turkish and I've just spent a lot of time in Turkey. But it is there is something different about having a work visa and living in that way compared to going to university because it's the easiest way to get a visa. And that's just sort of my strategy to move through the world. And I like the culture that you can get access to in, in those campus spaces. Maybe my opinion would change if I had access to the other side of things, you know? How do you keep yourself unstuck? How do I keep myself unstuck? I mean, first of all, I don't think that I do. I think that I'll focus really hard on a certain life lesson because I love life lessons. (laughs) My whole life is just a desperate search for meaning and I lean into it hard and it's very, very fun and fulfilling for me. 
But usually what happens is I'll focus a lot on one lesson and then won't notice that I'm getting stuck in a completely different sphere of my life. And that creeps up on me. And then I'm like, oh, damn, my house situation is just tearing me apart. And I didn't even realize what's going on. And then I have to address that one. So I sort of ricochet between the different spaces in which we can struggle. But I think the biggest thing is that I've learned to remind myself that you can always change your circumstances and you should try to. And the mantra I always tell myself is don't forget about joy, which is really specific to not forgetting as opposed to remembering, because I feel like we're conditioned so much to not even include joy in the list of priorities that we think about for any part of our lives or what we're trying to accomplish. And so just reminding myself when I feel overwhelmed, like I had a panic attack recently in South Africa. And I didn't even know why. I didn't even know why I had it. It was just a crazy sticking to have this happen. And then to realize something is wrong. And I don't, I wasn't even paying attention. So what's going on? Why am I not feeling joy? That is important. Let's work on it. And then by asking myself those questions, I really managed to pull apart the different things that were causing me a lot of, you know, emotional and spiritual pain that I was just totally suppressing and ignoring. And then I addressed them. So I think that the crisis, for me, the crises just continue to happen, but I'm super quick on response. <laughs> and I know that I'm there to try for it. You know, I'm not going to accept that that's the way that I'm going to live. You know, when the, that was my first panic attack. And when that happened, I was like, I refuse to have another panic attack. <laughs> and maybe it will happen again, you know, but the headspace I'm in is like, I am going to change my life because this is not an okay feeling. I'm not here for it. I'm going to figure out how to change the structure of my life to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, instead of just accepting that that kind of stress is, is okay or is outside of my control, you know? Something I'm not hearing here is I don't hear you taking this personally, this panic attack. And one way I do hear you saying like, mm, the choices I have made have brought me here or something like that. It sounds like your ability to respond to these things is really heightened by this lack of yeah. putting yourself in a shame spiral. Yeah, that's such a great observation. I mean, first of all, I love that you heard that and you're right. But second of all, during the crises in all of these different times, the feeling is deep shame. I mean, the feeling is deep, like I am a, I'm a failure for not being able to keep this job or not be able to do this job full together. I'm a failure for not being able to make this house work. I'm a failure for not being able to make Cape Town work. I'm a failure for not being able to make money and change the world or whatever else. The crisis always involves self-loathing, you know, just this, this idea that I could be doing better and I just suck so bad <laughs> that I'm not. And then the work is me taking those deep breaths and reminding myself that it's not my fault, mm. that I'm actually a good person and that the world is unfair and I can change this and fix it. And I guess maybe when I said it's getting easier, maybe that's actually what I meant is that what I meant is that it's easier for me to very quickly course correct and remind myself of that instead of for me to just hate on myself and actually get lost thinking that it was my fault. And you know, sometimes it is our fault, but what is fault? I mean, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we just need to be okay. And we're all good people trying our best. There are so many systems working against us that I'm not interested in being relation in relationship with other people or with myself in a way that we're tearing each other down. Mm. You know, it's really powerful. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I try really hard. That's a part of it. It's fun to try hard. It is fun to try hard. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think it is fun to try hard when it's, when we can 
release ourselves from judgment, right? That is what Mm -hmm. makes it fun. That is what makes the trying fun because Mm -hmm. then whether we fly or we fall this particular time, it doesn't matter. We get back up, Mm -hmm. we try again. It's interesting because I'm thinking about gamifying as I'm talking because part of what I do is not only beliefs, but also practices. Because what happens is we have the unsticking, we have the insight, Mm -hmm. and then without the practice, it doesn't really integrate, right? It becomes something that we know, Mm -hmm. but not something that we do, not something that we inhabit, Mm -hmm. not something that we practice. And so I'd love to hear your strategy for getting out of Mm. crisis. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's fun. Yeah, it's really fun. I find it very, very fun. It works for my brain really well. I feel like I could talk just about that for like two hours. But something that I like to do is I make what I call life games. So I basically create a game sheet and pretend that my life is a game in which I'm trying to win by getting points. And I'll split the different spheres in which I can get points into three different categories that correspond to different things. So for example, when I was trying to write my first thesis, I had thesis world, real world, and spirit world. Thesis world was everything related to university real world was all of the stuff that you have to do to get your groceries, clean your house, pay bills, live a functional life. Spirit world was obviously the best world in which you make art and take photos and talk to friends and experience joy and love. And I had to get points in each of these categories in similar amounts. So it was a really good way of externalizing this value system so that I wouldn't just focus only on my thesis obsessively and then deplete the other two categories and be losing something. And it also was a way in which I could praise myself for doing things that I might otherwise be convinced was a waste of time. I could spend two hours in the hammock reading young adult fiction, and I would get a point for that in spirit world. Whereas normally, without these life games running, I would think, well, I wasted an entire afternoon that I should have been doing something else. You know, so these games have been really helpful for me to create an alternative way of moving through life. And when I'm doing these games, I am so radically productive. (laughs) Like I'll wake up like I'm in full game headspace and there's a lot of rules and stuff to this game that we can't get into now. But, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll think to myself, how can I get five points today? And it just already fills me with joy daydreaming about it. And I'll think, well, I could do these two things for Thesis World. That's kind of a light lift. That's maybe bigger. But I could do that at the same time as doing this errand. And it even changes my relationship with things that happen. You know, once I had an accident with my bike and it broke and I had to carry it all the way back to the city center and get it fixed. And it was such a frustrating and labor-intensive thing. But, you know, I got two points for that. And I was pretty low on points in the real world. So it was a pretty exciting way for me to all of a sudden rake in some cool points in this category. So just the way that I move through space brings me so much more joy and pride. And I feel productive in the ways that I think are more meaningful than I normally would. And so usually when I make these games, I'll have like a set two-week process or something I'll have the number of points I want to get, a goal. I'll have allies, so I'll have friends that I share my game sheet with where I'm documenting everything. Friends check in and are really supportive. And almost every crisis that I've had, I've used a game to get out of. And it's just it's just been delightful. If you ever want the template, I can send it to you. I really love it. We'll link to that in the show notes. Well, I know we have to wrap up. So one last question. Mm-hmm. What do you want to share with folks who feel stuck around money or joy Money isn't what matters. It's fake and our lives are real. And your life matters. Your joy matters. Love and the relationships around you matter. And so much of the other stuff is literally fake. It doesn't feel like it is. We're not told that it is, but it is. And don't forget about joy. And that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a joy. We'll see you all next week. Stay with us.